Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special episode 159 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a bona fide legend of comedy generally and late night specifically. The host of NBC's The Tonight Show from 1992 through 2009, and then again from 2010 through 2014, and now the host of CNBC's Jay Leno's Garage, which started as a web series in 2006 and then went on the air in 2015, the one and only Jay Leno. The 67-year-old, a 2014 inductee into the Television Hall of Fame and the 2014 recipient of the Kennedy Center's Mark Twain Prize for American Humor, has received 18 Emmy nominations over the years, winning twice, once for Outstanding Variety, Music, or Comedy Series for The Tonight Show in 1995, and the other time for Outstanding Special Class Short Format Nonfiction Program for Jay Leno's Garage in 2011. The latter program has been nominated in that category seven times and could be nominated again this year. Over the course of our conversation in Leno's office within his massive garage near the Hollywood Burbank Airport, where he houses and maintains roughly 130 cars and nearly as many motorcycles, and where he shoots Jay Leno's garage, he and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How a kid who was born in New Rochelle, New York, and raised in Andover, Massachusetts, fell in love with comedy, became a stand-up performer, and wound up making a name for himself in L.A. How he and David Letterman became friends on the comedy circuit, and Leno made many appearances on Letterman's 1980s show Late Night with David Letterman before Leno's selection as Johnny Carson's successor at The Tonight Show in 1992 soured their relationship. How Leno's version of The Tonight Show evolved and why, throughout his 23 years as its host, he continued to perform stand-up on more than 100 dates a year. Why he feels that he did nothing wrong as far as leaving The Tonight Show hosting job in 2009 and then reclaiming it in 2010, resulting in a very public feud with Conan O'Brien, who had held the job in between those two periods. Why Letterman refused to participate in Leno's final episode and why Leno refused to participate in Letterman's. Why a guy who was paid $30 million a year to tell jokes in front of millions on a nightly basis now finds satisfaction in talking about cars in front of a much smaller audience once a week, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Jay, thank you so much for doing Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I guess before we get down to business, can you set the scene for our listeners? Where are we right now? We're over at my garage. I'm in the office of my garage. I used to have an office at NBC, and after I left The Tonight Show, I kept that office for about another two and a half, three years, and then until I've got this building next to my garage, and now we do all the production, everything out of here. Yeah, it's amazing. All right, so where we normally begin is just basic. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? I was born in New Rochelle, New York. My dad was an insurance salesman. My mom was a housewife. <laughs> My mom was from Scotland. My dad was Italian. Very funny combination. And what sort of a, a kid were you? Were you the popular guy, the nerdy guy? How would you describe yourself as a kid? I was always a happy kid. I was not withdrawn or sullen or anything like that. My brother was 10 years older. So for all intents and purposes, I guess I was an only child. My mom had a very rough life. My mom was born in Scotland, and my grandmother had run off with another man. So my grandfather was stuck in a one-room apartment in, in, in Greenock in Glasgow with six kids. And the landlord said, you got too many. you got to get rid of one. So I just put my mother on a boat. They sent her to America. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's what they did in those days. You know, the bathtub was in the middle of the, the living room, and everybody had to leave the apartment when somebody took a bath. I mean, it's a, so my mother was not a depressed person. But, I, you know, as a kid, I'd walk in and she'd have her Chesterfield and be smoking and just sort of staring out the window. I mean, it wasn't like manic depression or anything like that. Her natural state wasn't buoyancy, you know what I mean? So as a kid, I would always try to do things to make my mom laugh. And my dad being a prize fighter and he's Italian and loud, I think my mother was attracted to that because it was... It was energy and the Italian family, a lot of noise and right. this kind of stuff. So I think that's probably why I became a comedian, just to kind of make, cool, you know, anything to make my mom laugh. Sure. Oh, yeah, like she, she'd smile and she'd start coughing and put the cigarette <laughs> down. And, and I would think, oh, I've, I've done something good, you know. So for you, in terms of realizing that comedy was actually a profession for some people, did you consume it as a kid on TV or anywhere else? What no, was I, I grew up in New England. And, and, you know, when you live in Massachusetts, you... 
you're raised on reading Ethan Frome and Silence Monner, Silence Monner, and these all these sort of you live and then you, then you meet someone and then they have children, and then you die and you die a lonely child, and your children die first, you life, a horrible life. I mean, every every book you read, right. you know, the horrible, it's right. you know the the Shakers, the other one, you don't have children, that's a crazy thing to do. And so I never thought of being in show business. My dad worked for Prudential Insurance, and he was a manager. Mm-hmm. And once a month to motivate the men, he would kind of put on a little show in the office, you know, one of those motivational things. He'd play High Hopes by Frank Sinatra, and uh, one of the guys would try to juggle, and, uh, you know, just whatever, just any kind of funny thing to kind of break the ice. And, all right, guys, get out there and sell, you know, that, that's that kind of thing. Because back in those days, it was all men, mm-hmm. and usually Italian guys, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and my dad, so my dad did. He sold insurance, and my dad was a real good guy you know when he, he was a prize fighter and i never knew how far my dad got in schooling he would never say mm-hmm. but i don't think it was too far because he was a tough kid he knew dutch schultz when he was a kid and all these kind of guys but my dad went to work for prudential insurance company and he said right, what's the toughest district to sell you know and they said harlem you know black people don't buy insurance and my dad thought that why wouldn't black people want insurance they have families you know so my dad went door to door in harlem selling nickel policies and it became one of the most popular, one of the most productive because mm-hmm. everybody bought insurance, you know. And every week you go and collect a nickel. That's what it would pay $2,500 if you want. Wow. And when my dad died, I talked about it on the Tonight Show. And I got a letter from a lady who was well in her 80s by then. And she said when she was a little girl, there's a man named Mr. Angelo who would come to their door. He was the only white person that ever had dinner in their house. He would always bring her a Tootsie Roll or a candy. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, everything she learned about white people, she learned from Mr. Angel, was that your father? And it really was emotional to me. Yeah. Because my dad was a street kid with tough talk. And in an era when everybody used racial epithets, like, you know, my dad was never one of those guys. If we were kids and we ever said something, you know, he'd get smacked. So he, he, he was a little bit ahead of his time. So I was always quite proud of him for that. Just further contextualizing where you came from, was TV... A presence in the home was it something? What did you watch as a as a family or growing up or whatever? Well, as a kid, I was born in 1950, so for the first few years we had the black and white set. Of course, I guess in the early 60s we got the color TV, which was a big <laughs> deal with the antenna and the whole bit. And and you watched, you know, Jackie Gleason, and you watched Red Skelton, and you and then I remember the Beverly Hillbillies came out. I mean, you watched the shows that everybody. You know, for the first 10 years of comedy for everybody of my generation, that was the sort of connecting factor. Hey, you ever see that commercial where this happened? Oh, and the whole audience knows what you're talking about. Nowadays, with Netflix and everything, nobody, you mentioned a commercial, what? I mean, people don't know what you mean, you know. But television was the great unifier, you know. Any product that had, as seen on TV, <laughs> on the label, oh my, well, that would sell out because it was seen on TV. It must be very good, you know. What about late night? When, uh, you know, as you got a little older, did what What was your first exposure? Well, I remember watching Steve Allen. I remember watching Jack Parr. And of course, and of course Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was the guy. You know, it was interesting when I took over the Tonight Show, you get the usual, you know, brick bats being thrown at you and whatnot. And someone sent me an article from 1969, and it said, when is Parr coming back? Johnny Carson with his foolish antics and his art firm. You know, Jack Parr talked to Noel Coward and blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and of course, Johnny had 10 times the ratings right. that Jack right. did. You know, and so you realize people get settled in with a certain, and, and, and that's what it is. But, you know, Johnny had it rough in the beginning. He went against, people always think, oh, he, he, uh, won easily well i mean he he did win easily but but he vanquished a lot of competition mm-hmm. you know joey bishop is coming on again oh that's going to be the end of johnny carson you get those up <laughs> merv griffin's going to go oh that'll right. be the end of that keith brazil you remember that name no. somebody yeah he, do you remember that name he he, he was going to knock johnny carson right. so you know and then of course when it was obvious nobody's going to knock johnny off his perch then it was johnny Car- but it, it was a struggle for for everybody sure. you know you go off to Emerson College. What did you study there? And at that time, what did you imagine your, your future was going to entail? Oh, I don't know. I went to Emerson School of Accounting and Finance for like eight months. And being dyslexic, I just went there because it was near my house. And well, I flunked out of that. Right. And then I went to Emerson, you know, maybe show, maybe something in show business. But at that point, I mean, Emerson's a terrific school. 
but there was no comedy program. It was mostly drama. You didn't. Nobody went to school. So I, I just lived on the. My parents wanted me to finish college, so I came from the. Is this going to be on the test? Okay, great. So I have to know this. <laughs> so I, I did not apply myself. No, nor did I really. But it had already it. occurred to you that you that you were interested in seeing what you could do with comedy. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about Boston was you had hundreds of colleges with thousands of students with no talent being willing to be entertained by people who had no money, you know? Mm-hmm. And and that was kind of the interesting part. Every college, they'd put a candle in the cafeteria and it would become the Tuto Cafe or something on Saturday night. And, you know, they had Hootenanny night. It shows you how long ago it was. <laughs> but it was mostly, you know, guys with flashlights under the... Stop your war machine, click! And they turn the flashlight <laughs> up and then run to another dark part of the room, put the flashlight up. Stop your war machine, man, click! Very dramatic. So doing comedy in that era was not seen as something, you know, it was seemed a bit frivolous. So yeah. was it while you were at school in Boston that you first saw stand-up? Where was your first exposure to stand-up? Well, you know, my first exposure to stand-up was, again, when I was really young, the comedians were all Alan King, Shecky Green, Jackie Mason. They were old Jewish men from the Lower East Side of New York that had been grown up during the Depression. Mm-hmm. I love Richie Pryor, but I didn't relate to Richie because my background was not similar to his. The first guy I really connected with is Robert Klein because he was a guy about 10 years older than me, middle-class background. Dad had a regular job. Mom was a housewife. Wasn't rich, wasn't poor. He watched the same TV shows I did. He had bits about Ozzy and Harriet and Leave it to Be. You know, just all the regular things that were on TV. You know, he wasn't talking about a world I didn't live in or mm-hmm. know about, you know. I love Pryor, but Pryor was like too cool, you know, <laughs> African-American and talking about things I had no connection with, certainly at that point, being 18, 19 years old. So Robert Klein was the first one that I really connected with. Oh, there's a guy that's talking about stuff. Like, and how I, did you consume him? Was it records? Was it seeing him somewhere? What? I, he used to had a summer show. Yeah, I went to Emerson and I took a course. And it was one of these courses where instead of a final exam, you had to give a 20-minute talk. Mm-hmm. So I listened to George Carlin's album, mm-hmm. and I had my own jokes, but I would play George Carlin's class clown thing in my head. And then the part where I was going to speak out loud, I would then put my jokes in. I didn't do his <laughs> jokes on stage, right. but in my mind, I would do his routine. Right. And then, and please welcome Jay Leno as the next speaker. I'd try to time it. And when I was in school, you know, almost like a, a record, I would yeah. jump in at yeah. the end. And, and that really helped me. So Carlin who became a good friend later in life. He was really terrific. And and Robert Klein and, and David Steinberg, too. I remember seeing David Steinberg at Paul's Mall in Boston, which was kind of a hip jazz joint. Because jazz and comedy were pretty closely tied yeah. together. Jazz's audiences would listen. You know, rock and roll audiences were, wouldn't listen to to anybody talking. <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. Whereas, whereas with, with jazz, you know, you have like, Somebody playing the blues, and I mean, I opened for Miles Davis, Mose Allison, wow. Stan Getz, Alma Jamal, Chick Corea. I mean, all these great jazz, uh, you know, even Tony Bennett too. And and it was it was really an education because I I got to see how people reacted. You know, mm-hmm. I remember seeing Franklin Ajay, who I always considered the first jazz comedian because he he would. I enjoyed his lyrical way of putting words together. I was not a big jazz fan, Mm -hmm. but jazz comedy was just sort of stringing phrases together that didn't seem connected, but would somehow wind up having a connection. And Franklin always did that very well. Interesting. So for you, do you remember when and where you first tried stand-up, you know, your first time, and then... Well, my first time was, first, I had a roommate in college, Gene Bronstein, and he and I did... A double act, kind of a Gene and Jay's unique and original comedy, that was sort of thing. <laughs> and we used to do the cafes and the talent shows and stuff like that. And then I saw an ad in the Boston Phoenix, which was the sort of hippie paper, I as they say. Yeah. I think you're funny, join this comedy group. I auditioned for it. I, I got it. Gene didn't get it. It was called Fresh Fruit Cocktail. And we stayed together for about eight months or nine months. It was one of those things where some of us wanted to work every weekend, and some of us went, no, let's take this weekend off. Whew, we worked last week. So I said, well, this isn't working. So I went down to the other end in New York, and I auditioned down there. And I got up, and it, it, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't great. It was okay. 
I remember the first joke I did. It was I talked about going to school in Boston. And you have to remember, there was a movie called The Harrod Experiment out at the time, which is about boys and girls living together in college on the same <laughs> floor. Ooh, that, I mean, the same just stuff you take for granted. Right. So uh, consequently, I, and I, I remember the first joke I told was I go to Emerson College, very liberal school. You can have girls in your room. You can have drugs in your room. You can have sex in your room 24 hours a day if you want to. The only thing you weren't allowed to have a hot plate. You couldn't have a hot plate in your room. You know, what's going on in there? We're just having sex. You got soup in there? No, we're not making soup. We're just having sex. I know I can smell soup. You know, just those kind of routines. And that's kind of what it be. And, and that worked pretty well. Okay, so then I went back to Boston and I went out to a club called Lenny's on the Turnpike, which was probably the premier jazz club, certainly on the East Coast, outside of New York anyway. You see, it was different then. In those days... An act like now, an act like Miles Davis or Chick Corea, you would come to the Orpheum, you would come to a theater, mm-hmm. you do anywhere from 2,500 to 5,000 seats, you do one show, and you leave town. But in, then you would go to a supper club for five days. And Lenny seated about 300 people, and I remember it was a steak dinner, two drinks, Miles Davis and the comedian, 1295. Wow. Which I wish we could uh, get that deal That wasn't today. that cheap in 1970. Yeah, I guess not. I mean, I mean, a Joan Byers concert in Boston in 1970 was $2. You know, it was just, it's just different, you yeah. know, so. But the other thing that was kind of different was that there weren't a lot of comedy clubs, period, right? You, where would you, you ended up well, as you started. Well, there weren't comedy clubs. I used yeah. to work strip joints. Right. Which was wonderful. I mean, you're 19 and there's naked women at your job. I mean, it was. It was fantastic. And Sometimes in the dark, right? I was reading. You were well, saying. the fascinating part was most of the... We're not talking about hookers here. Right. You're talking about not well-educated women who didn't want to be secretaries. Mm-hmm. As exotic dancers, they could make their own hours, work whenever they wanted. I worked with two strippers, Lily Pagan and Anita Mann. That was her name. <laughs> and I guess... In retrospect, they were gay. I didn't, but they were like big women. I mean, they looked like big, tough guys. And they had like really close crop haircuts, but they wear the long wigs. And we would drive out to like Fort Devons, which is a fort in Massachusetts, to do a show. And they would take their power tools and they'd put together this giant plastic champagne glass that they would take a bath in, you know. (laughs) But they would put it together themselves. But this you, would they'd be doing that while you're doing your jokes? No, no, no. This is in the afternoon. No, no, no but I mean, they're, when they're doing yeah. their act, that's you're simultaneously right. telling jokes. Right, So I'm telling jokes. Is anyone paying attention to you? Well, here's the funny part. <laughs> I remember one time, I'm not sure it was Lily or, or, or Anita, but <laughs> she's in the tub naked. She's splashing herself. And some guy's heckling me. And, and he, I don't know what he said, but they're very protective because I was young. And she just gets out of the tub, walks over, grabs a guy, with a full fist, punches him in the face and breaks his nose and just blood goes all over the place. Blood gets all over her. The audience is roaring with laughs. Oh so she God. gets back in the tub and you know, washes the blood off. The guys, oh, they take the guy out. Hilarious. That's great. Oh, this is great when you're 19, 20 years old. And meanwhile, just to note, some of the other places you would you would do it, retirement homes, prisons, mental hospitals, all that's true? Yeah, I used to do, you know, the worst, I used to get $10 to do old people's birthday parties for the state <laughs> in Massachusetts. And you go out to these just horrible institutions where it'd be like cinder block walls and the window would be maybe nine feet high. And it'd be one of those ones that only opens a crack. So you couldn't see out. Mm-hmm. And you'd walk in. I remember walking as a woman in a wheelchair. Bessie, we have a comedian. <laughs> Bessie, do you like comedians? And she just... <laughs> Sitting there staring at you know, and it's like, oh, you're just playing a her. No, well, there's like three or four other people, it's just playing to that. And we used to do uh, the prisons were like the worst (laughs) because there's no you know, most comedy comes from a conservative place, and the humor is when you break free from that, you know. But I can remember doing Walpole State Prison, and hey, guys, you have this, you meet a girl, and you know, you want to say something, but you, would you just fuck her, man? <laughs> um, um, okay, okay, that's that's not really the way we do it. But I mean, you know, there's no sense of social right. grace. Yeah. Just fuck her. Would you do that? What are you get a pussy? Okay, well, okay, I'm just trying to. And you realize, you know, you're, you, the idea of using any sort of right. tact is, is nothing. But I remember the worst one was uh, I was doing a show, and this guy comes in. 
and a guy who looks like a young David Spade right. is on all fours in his underpants with a choke chain around his <laughs> neck. And this guy drags him into the show and puts him right in front of me. I, and every time I'd tell a joke, hey, love, you kick this guy in the head. The guy go, ow, love. <laughs> okay, okay, you know, there's really no reason to oh, kick him in the head, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are just so many horrible experiences. So the question that I have is, as you're, I guess that was all while you were still in college or some of that was afterwards? That was while I was still in college. So yeah. what do your folks think when you say this is what you want to do beyond college? Well, my, you know, my folks are like, look, just finish school. And if it doesn't, just get an education, then you can do whatever you want. My parents were not discouraging me. They just never got it. But my mother never got it till the day. I remember when I played Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. I invited my parents, you know. I put my mother in the fifth row center, mm-hmm. Carnegie Hall. And she's, you know, my name's on the marquee, and she can't imagine why all these people are here, you know. <laughs> so... At that point, I'd been doing a Letterman show quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And with Letterman in those days, you got like college kids that were fans. So I go on and I start a routine. And these guys are behind my mother and they know the routine. So they're laughing really loud. My mother turns, turns around and goes, shh, <laughs> shh. I go, ma, you don't shush people at a comedy. Of course, my mother's so embarrassed. Right. This guy goes, hoo, hoo, hoo. Oh, you, you don't God. shush people at a comedy show. That's yeah, yeah. So at what point did you decide that if you're going to pursue this, you need to go out west? You know, I was sitting in my apartment one day and I had tons of friends in Boston that were actors and whatnot. And I was working at a car dealership and my friends were waiters and waitresses and whatever. And it got to the point where I think one of my friends said, oh, I can't go to this audition because I got to work. And as I looked around my apartment, I realized I was starting to acquire stuff, Mm -hmm. a nice chair, a lamp, whatever, (laughs) you know, just, and I realized if I stay in Boston, I'm either going to accumulate more stuff. I got to leave. You know something? I got to leave right now. And I, I, I just called the airlines. It was any flight. To, yeah, there's one of the flight at 10 o'clock. And I went to the neighbors. They take whatever you want out of the apartment. And I just took it. Oh and I left. And I just, that was the only way to do it. Because if I hadn't done that, I didn't want to get a regular job. Right. If I couldn't make a living as a comedian. I mean, you can eat top ramen. And when you're single and all that kind of <laughs> stuff, it's not that Difficult. You don't need a lot of money to exist when you're single and young. And I, I said, no, I'm just going to get on a plane. And that's what I did. I just got on the plane. I, I flew to L.A. Oh, when I landed at like, oh, I don't know, 1130 or midnight or something. Right. I said to this driver, take me to the Sunset Strip. How much you got? Well, I don't know. How much is this? It's about 50 bucks. Just a lot of money. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then he dropped me at Sunset and Western, oh. which technically is not the Sunset no. Strip. I didn't know that. Had you ever been out there? No. So I walked from there like five miles, eight miles. and You decided the place, you want to get out of Boston, but the reason you want to go to L.A. Of, rather than somewhere else was that you knew the comedy scene was out here? The comedy scene was out here. Johnny Carson had just moved to California, mm-hmm. you know, that whole thing. All the shows were out here. I thought, well, this seems to be the place to be because I'd been in New York. I auditioned for Saturday Night Live. I didn't get that. And I said, well, let me let me try California. So that's what I did. And I, I, I came here and I slept on this back stairs of the comedy store for a couple of weeks. It was all right. It was fun. Well, that was the thing that was, uh, I was one of the things I was amazed to discover prepping for this. Because you, you go to the comedy store now, your, your picture's up there. I know you were a hit there. But I guess starting from the beginning, but even for a while, you were, you were saying you would get picked up for vagrancy around there. Well, I got arrested twice for vagrancy. Uh, no, you know, technically not arrested. The cops would see you standing and come over here. Where do you live? I don't know, get in the back of the car. <laughs> so, and they would drive you around all night and then drop you off at like six in the morning right. at the end of their shift. And I would tell them jokes. <laughs> and they were, you know, they were very nice. Yeah. I mean, it was nice. They were nice cops. They could see I was not in that element. Right. You know, it was pretty crazy at Hollywood Boulevard, especially back then. But, it, you know, and then like a couple nights later, you find a place to live in. Oh, well, I'm looking, I get in the back. Oh, fine. <laughs> and then we just drive around. You know, that's but what, you were okay living like that? Not having any idea? Yeah, what, what I used to do was I would go to open houses and right before the open house closed, you know, I'd say, oh, thank you. I'd leave and I'd sneak back in, stand in the closet, <laughs> realtor would leave, lock the door and I'd sleep on the bed. <laughs> and I, I lived at a house up on... Right above the Hollywood Bowl. Mm-hmm. That one, oh, yeah. That yeah, one up there. But I lived in... That was a good open house. I stayed there about <laughs> three days. You know? But, okay, so at what point did that stop? And was it because 
it seems like you, you started working at the comedy store and you also, as you referenced, started appearing on on Letterman show, which at the time was late night with David Letterman, Letterman I guess. Letterman came a little bit late. We're talking now the 70s. Okay. Letterman didn't come on until 80s. So what got you out of that funk? Well, I finally got The Tonight Show and I got Merv Griffin and a bunch of those shows. And, and there were a ton of shows. There was Waylon Flowers and Madam, he had a show. Right. There were all these kind of shows. But The Tonight Show was the gold standard. Yeah, that was sort of the gold standard. But you know something? Nobody was better than Merv. Merv was a great guy. Merv put a lot of comedians on. And a lot of comedians will claim, oh, the first show was The Tonight Show. But they actually did Merv first. Mm -hmm. And then, in fact, I remember Freddie Prince did Merv that afternoon. Okay, did the exact same set on The Tonight Show. But as I remember, Sammy Davis was sitting on the couch and Sammy woo, went crazy with Freddie. <laughs> so that made him, and you know, people saw Sammy right. react. So then they went crazy for Freddie and he became a huge hit and got Chico on the man. Right so after. for people who don't remember the world when there were three networks, yeah. why was it so impactful for a comedian to get an invite to go and do a spot on, let's say, Tonight Show or Merv or whatever? And for you, knowing that it was so big a deal, do you remember how it came about for the first time, how you did all of that with... With Johnny. No, it went fine. I, I mean, I auditioned for the show many times and didn't get it. Johnny came in to see me a number of times. Steve Martin was very helpful. You know, it's so funny. Everybody thinks it's this horrible cutthroat business. It's really not. You really get more work from other comics when you're starting out than you ever get from an agent or a manager. And, you know, I remember Carl Reiner came in to see me. Johnny himself came in to see me, and Johnny pulled me aside. And he said, you know, you should write your jokes down because you're a good performer, but the material is a little weak. And I was a better performer at the time than I was a writer. And that's kind of how Letterman and I hooked up, because I saw Letterman at the comedy store. And Letterman was very awkward as a performer, kind of shuffling and looking at the ground. But a brilliant wordsmith could weave sentences together that were genuinely humorous. He would use, instead of say, saying a drink, he would say an adult beverage. He, would, <laughs> he always had words that better explain what... And I, thought, and I went up to him, I said, oh man, you really use words well. He goes, well, I was watching you, how do you... How can you be so confident on stay? I mean, doesn't he? <laughs> no, so so we sort of took a little bit from each other at that point. And that was before he even had his show. Oh no, this is no, this is when he auditioned. I'm talking about he was in town a week. Yeah, literally. I mean, the first couple of weeks, you know, it was it was at just the comedy store. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I remember Robin came in and. At the time, Rob was doing this Russian character, great to be here. And, so, and I thought he was really a kid from Russia. I felt sorry for him. I went up and introduced myself. He goes, no, I'm from San Francisco. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so stupid. But he was so good. I, I just really thought he was a Russian kid. That's hilarious. Yeah. So how did it work out that for five years spanning 87 to ni through 91, you ended up being this the main substitute for for Johnny. How did that come about and what, it, what was that like for you? Well, I could not get The Tonight Show for a long time. And then I started doing Letterman. And Letterman Show worked for me because The Tonight Show... Well, no, I had gotten the, I'd done The Tonight Show first. But growing up in New England, you have a reverence to your elders, for lack of mm -hmm, a better word. Mm -hmm. I, go, I would say, thank you, Mr. Carson. I couldn't call him John. Right. You know, I always felt weird. Right. You know, whereas with Letterman, we were the same age. Nice tie, Dave. You know, I could just say, that. what kind of crap show is right. this? I mean, I could do all that kind of... And you realize show business is the opposite of real life. You know, all the skills that got you to this point mean nothing. And, I mean, I learned that once I went for an audition. And usually I go, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I've studied the material. Thank you so much. And I got this script that was so bad. I said, you know, this is the worst script. Ever. This thing is the biggest piece of crap. And I just started riffing on it. And the people were laughing. And I left, thinking, oh, that's that. Right. And then they called me, hey, you got it. I go, I don't want it. <laughs> well, why did I get it? Well, because I had been rude right. and, and sort of nasty. Not nasty, but just, just funny, I guess. But, you know, I thought, oh, okay, you know, maybe this is the way I have. But I couldn't bring myself to do that with Johnny. Right. You know, I couldn't go, Johnny, what the hell kind of monologue was that? Right. You know, I mean, you can't, I couldn't do that. Well, but I could do that with Letterman. Right. So that that sort of irreverence worked well. And Peter LaSalle saw me and said, let's give the kid a try guest hosting, you know. So I did, and then it came from there. Having held that capacity for a few years there as the main substitute, did you assume that when he left? No, you never assume anything. Yeah. I mean, what I did was, I remember there were about, half a dozen or maybe eight guys, and it was guys at that point, mm -hmm. auditioning for, it was a rotating, they were trying different people. Yeah. Nasty. And one of the managers called me and said, listen, I'm, I'm managing the other six people. 
and we're going to go to Carson and tell him we want $25,000 a show to guest host. We think that's fair. And I said, you know, I'm asking for $512 a show, <laughs> which is what the thing was. Because I said, well, we didn't make a mistake. Why don't you join us? I said, no, it's okay. I, I'm, I, I just like doing it. I'll do it for the $512. Okay. A couple of weeks later, I'm the permanent really? guest host. <laughs> because why spend $25,000 right. a week? When you twelve? And it didn't mean I was necessarily better than anybody else. It's just the fact that I was economically, and I learned my lesson at that point. I never argued about money. What is a job? I don't care what it pays. I, I will make my money, like, you know, people always make a big deal of this, but when I got to Tonight Show, I never touched a dime of it because I always lived on what I made as a comedian. I'm, I'm a comedian. That's my TV, you know, TV is basically, you know, don't fall in love with a hooker, okay? Because it's not going to end well. So, <laughs> and that's what TV is. If, right. you, if you really believe right. this Paris Hilton type person is your friend, right. this isn't going to work out for you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I, I mean, that's that's an old reference for Paris Hilton. That's, uh, that's good. But, but you know what I mean? So, to me, I just guest host and pay me. My thing was pay me whatever you want. Fine. So, if this kid doesn't work out, at least we don't lose a sh my, our shirt on. Right. You know, I never wanted to be the highest paid guy out there. I don't know why people want that. Puts a target on you, right? But see, I have no idea how much Meryl Streep makes a movie. Right. She could be the highest paid. She could work for scale. All I know is I enjoy her work. Right. So I go to see her. I don't want to sit there and go, she's good. That's right. not $20 million good. Right. I, I don't right. want to do Yeah, right. I, I never wanted to be that person, you know. <laughs> how did you find out you got the job? And did Johnny at that point have any words of wisdom or advice or anything like that? Johnny was always very nice to me. I mean, I think it's fairly well known that Johnny wanted Dave. Dave had a fractured, uh, a tough relationship with the network. He would call them network weasels and all that kind of, that was all very funny and stuff. But I remember one time when he was guest hosting The Tonight Show, one of the executives wanted to bring the teenage kids to the show. And Dave said, no. Well, with the, no. And that person was a fairly influential person and said, you know, I don't want to go through 30 years of this. Right. My kids want to sit in the back. What's the problem right, here? Right, let them do it, yeah. And, and I think that's probably one of the... Because when I got the show, I said, how did this work? Was there a vote? No, we just picked you. Uh, you do well, you're fine. Oh, okay. And of course, somehow I got the moniker of being this horrible person based on all that. Well, the, the, the reason, supposedly, was that it was made as if it was somebody was deprived of their of their birthright. Right? Well, the idea was, I would always read this, I snuck in and I took it. I read that once. I snuck in and I took it at the last moment. I was guest hosting for five years. I was the only person doing it. You know, so, all right. And, well, and, and But did it immediately, rightly or wrongly, have an impact on what had been now a years-long friendship with Dave? Yeah, I think it, it took... And, I, you know, I don't think it was me. I think whoever got the job, Dave, would have been hurt. I did Dave's show after it was announced that I got it. And I knew Dave just said, you know, I, I can't take this. I mean, he... He got colder. That's what he wanted. Yeah. That, that was his thing. You know, I was a stand-up comedian who was lucky enough to get a talk show. Letterman was a broadcaster who didn't really like being a stand-up comedian. So that was his life, his world. You know. So now your first show is May 25th, 92. You're only the fourth person after after Alan Parr and Johnny. Well, don't forget Jerry Lester, Broadway Open House. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, what were the biggest changes that took place when you became full-time? What were the, you know, you brought in a new band, obviously. You bring in a new brought set. brought in a new band. I had a overbearing manager at the time, which was a huge mistake. I should have taken care of that earlier, but I didn't. You got a little crazy there. I've got rid of her. <laughs> we were live for the first two weeks. Live, live. Wow. Not Why even. was that? Because there was Olympics or something. Something was going on. Yeah. Summer Olympics. I don't know. Something right. was going on. But anyway, we were live, live. So it was a little tricky. And how about the as far as your comedy style, approach, sensibility? Were you a, at all different than you were as a stand-up or whatever because now you're occupying a different... Roll well, up. I mean, this is, you know, I always hear this argument, you know, when you're young and you're broke and you're struggling, there's a certain anger, there's a certain angst or whatnot. When you become successful and you're older, if you still have that angst, it's probably phony. You just kind of have to flow with it. Okay, you can't talk about being broke and flying economy and how you got screwed anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean, like when I was a kid, when I would fly, I, like I used to hitchhike on Federal Express. I would go to the Federal Express office, and I'd slip the guy a couple of bucks, can I get in the jump seat? Sure. <laughs> then I would fly to Memphis, and I would find out, 
you'd sit there for five or six hours. And when's there a flight going to wherever I was going, New Mexico? And I just want to go, okay, fine. And I would just sit there with mail in the back and I just oh hand God. out 20s. And, and that's, <laughs> that's how you travel. But you can't, once you're successful, you can't, right, you right. can't do those kind of things, you know? You, you go on, as we say, in mid-92. By yeah. mid-93, Dave's starting at CBS. Right. You had a, a few years early on there where he was ahead in the ratings, and then ever after, like, you you were in front. Right. What was the turning point? What Was it the Hugh Grant thing? Was it something Well, else? I mean, everybody likes to pick one day. You know, it, it's like when you're a kid and you read about the fall of Rome. It was Thursday, <laughs> April 5th, you know, something A.D. Well, right. I mean... I, the real turnaround mm-hmm. probably came, you know, I was doing Johnny's show in Johnny's studio, which meant an audience seating that went straight up. There was a good 50 feet between Johnny and the audience. That's the way John, John, was Johnny's way he mm-hmm. liked it. I came from nightclubs where people sat right in front right. of me. So when we went to New York to do The Tonight Show, I said to Don Meyer, I said, can we do it the way... I mean, I'm kind of working in somebody else's house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm like, can we have the people right in front of me? So if I want to shake hands with them, they're like, well, you sure you want to shake hands with them? <laughs> I said, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, I think So I would go out and shake hands. And then suddenly there was a, a bit more intimacy there. So that week did very well because we had Jack Parr on and a few. Why other. were you in New York? Uh, just go to New York. Yeah, sure. You know, the, that. that's what you did. And the ratings were really good. And then I think after that, then the Hugh Grant incident happened and that that kind of put us over the top. And then the O.J. Simpson thing happened. And, you know, and we had the dancing Edos and some silly things like that. And that sort of would make the news on a weekly basis, sometimes a nightly basis. So, How early did some of those recurring segments, like a jaywalking or whatever, how early did that start? Right at the beginning. Really? The, yeah. And did you know that was going to be a standout? No, I didn't know. I mean, if it, obviously all the ones that didn't work, you don't yeah, know you don't about. Know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Okay, so a couple logistical questions sure. here. How many hours would you spend a day on the show, and how would that time be divided? I would say 80% of my time was on the monologue. Mm-hmm. The way it worked, when the show finished, I would not go to sleep until I had at least half the monologue done. For the next For the day. next day. Wow. Try to have half of it done, and then I would add a subtract based on the events of the day. I mean, the worst thing is you have an airline bit, and then there's a crash. Okay, right. well, then you got to move that around. Right. But that was really, most of my time was spent on the monologue, I always tried to see the film. I always tried to read the book. I always tried to listen to the album when I could. So you got an intimacy with the guests. I would always go in the dressing room and talk to the guests before the show. Mm-hmm. I know Johnny used, and Dave used the Johnny model. You don't see the people, so just wait and see what happens. But I just found there were people who were nervous and I would go in and I would say, you know, this is not an ambush show. We want you to look good. You're the star. I'm just the... I'm not going to step on your lines. I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. Is there anything I you don't want to talk about that's uncomfortable? Right. I don't want to surprise. Yeah, I you know, my kid got busted for drugs. Can we not talk about that? And if it was something really topical, I would say, look, I've got to ask you right. one question about it. Here's the question I'm going to ask you. If you want to say I don't want to answer it, that's fine. I just have to answer. Okay. So you always try to put people at ease and make them feel comfortable. So consequently, we would get a lot of guests that wouldn't do the other shows. You know? Yeah. On your off days, you did something that these other guys were not doing, and I wonder why, because you would go and continue to do all this stand-up. Well, no, I was a stand-up comedian. I mean, the worst, you know, comedy is not like music. People can take a year off music, sit in their basement, write an album, and then come out with it. I've never seen anybody leave comedy and come back funnier. I've never seen it happen. Right. It doesn't. Right. Because it's a continual growing process. The stage is not a normal place to be. So the more time you spend on the stage the more natural it becomes. And if you're not having on stage for two months, you, you, you know, somebody cough. I, I mean, <laughs> every, little, every little gesture, you know, every, everything you do on stage, you've done before. It, you know, being a comedian is basically the movie Groundhog Day. Yeah. <laughs> you keep doing the same thing every day and you eliminate the parts of it that don't work. Well, for you, this is not like, let's just go down to the comedy store. You'd go to Memphis. You'd go to... Yeah. all over on your off days. You didn't really have off days. No, there weren't any off days. I mean, the idea was if a joke works in Boston and Kentucky and Oklahoma and San Francisco, it's going to work just about everywhere. Yeah. And you you need to learn to read audiences. You know, I learned, instead of calling President Bush a nasty name, I would say, you know, President Bush, I don't think he quite understands. <laughs> and I think people would sense that you were right. trying to be 
polite, you know. To me, kindness goes a long way because if people like you, then they'll laugh at a joke that's maybe not that funny. Right. But they like you, you know. And you always I mean, played well in middle America. I mean, to me, this is my thing with all the Trump stuff. I don't like Trump. I can't stand the guy. I don't like him personally. Mm-hmm. But the constant negative Trump stuff on a nightly basis, I think it has a debilitating effect on people. People just, oh, gosh, I don't want to watch TV anymore. It's just the same thing every night. It's just, it's, you know, bup, bup, bup. I mean, sometimes... Like we would put the monologue together where you put a newspaper together. You open with the big story of the day. And then as you move through the paper, you do sports, entertainment, general interest. And that would always be like when times are silly, you could do serious jokes. When times are serious, you could do silly right. jokes, you know, and, and like that. Did you watch the other late night shows? How oh, did you, sure. So you'd, what, you'd rec- have them recorded and watch the monologue or what would you yeah, do? Yeah, I'd always watch the monologue. A, because you don't want to do a joke somebody else did. Right. You know, I think this happened to Conan. He was accused of taking some. I don't think he took anything. He's, he's not a thief. He's a good comedian. But somebody did something similar. Well, you can't know what everybody does, but you try to be reasonably vigilant, you know. What was the part of the job overall, as you look back, that you liked the most and that you liked the least? Well, I like doing the monologue the best. The toughest part was when you would have on, like, the 18-year-old supermodel. Right. Okay, she has the body of a woman, but she's really a child. You're 40-something years old. I can't flirt with... So where do you go to school? What, what, what do you, I mean, what do I do here? I mean, it was just awkward. I mean, we had one girl, 17, from Texas, and I could see her hand visibly shaking on my desk. She was so nervous. And it's like, do I put my hand on her hand? Okay, now I'm a creepy old guy. What do I do? You know, I mean, all those kind of things were awkward. The most fun was when you'd have a Bette Midler, somebody you could mix it up, right. who could throw it right back. Right. I shut up, Jay. You'd quit leering at my boobs, you know, whatever. Right. You know, whatever. Okay, and then that was really funny, you right. know. I mean, that, that was always the who most Who were awkward. those? So, like, that, who were some of the others that were your favorites to have? Oh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was always funny. Yeah. Bette Midler was funny. Heidi Klum was always good. You know, exactly the ones you'd think. Right. You know, the ones that could... Throw a punch. You know, any dame that can throw a punch is really good. That, that kind of stuff. So without belaboring the point, I have to ask you. 2004, you're still number one. Uh-huh. You're The show's making a, a killing. But NBC brings up this idea of this five-year exit plan. Well, no, they didn't bring up the idea. That idea was done. They told me about it after it was done. Meaning that you in 2009, was- you're out of there? Like, where did that idea come uh, from? Well, it didn't come from my camp. No. I'm not going to, you know. I mean, they come in, they said, listen, uh, you're out, and Conan's in. But one thing I always had, you know, people used to talk about pay or play contracts. If you don't use me, you got to pay me, which is really stupid. Mm-hmm. I always had pay and play contracts. Mm-hmm. If you're going to pay me, you have to use me. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's sign that deal right now. Fine. So they had to keep me. They would have just gotten rid of me at the time, and here's your money. Well, where's the Where's the logic in that? You're number one still. I don't. Well, I think that you're looking to the future. You're looking to oh, this was you know this this looks like the new thing, and that that's what it is. Okay, and you know the other side had good good managers and good big time lawyers and all that kind of stuff. I didn't have a manager or an agent or anything. It was just me. So okay, whatever you want to do, guys. It's your ball, you know. And then the next conversation is that. You're not ready. You you're enjoying it still at that point. You so why instead of going to a competitor do you do the prime time instead of? Well, I didn't go to a competitor because everybody that worked on my show, I would say ninety five percent had never worked in television before. They're with me now for sixteen years, seventeen years. They were on separate contracts. If I left, I couldn't take any of them with me. See, what happened when Craig Ferguson came on? And suddenly Craig Ferguson was getting good ratings. And then they realized, uh-oh, maybe this idea we had a couple of years ago, you know. So they got nervous and they came to me and they said, would you do a 10 o'clock show? And I said, you know, any show with your name on it doesn't work. The Jade Leno show, nobody cares about that. <laughs> and they said, I'll tell you what, if you sign on, we'll pay your staff for two years. So I got the staff together and I said, you guys going to work for two years? Said, oh, okay, let's try it. Okay. And then they had all these ideas. They met with affiliates. Affiliates decided that they wanted the monologue at quarter to 11 to lead into the news because that was the strongest part. <sighs> All right. I mean, I let myself get talked into it. I thought it was stupid at the time. All right. Okay. We did well. Anyway, this show didn't work. Okay. Okay, fine. So, all right. So the show didn't work. That's fine. But meanwhile, I think the Tonight Show is not doing well. 
either. I mean, you can blame it on lead. Everybody gets bad lead-ins. I mean, right. that's why they hire you to, <laughs> to make up for a bad lead-in. Right. And somehow this is my fault. And they said, would, would you want to do a half-hour show from 11 to 12? I said, that's not up to me. Uh, ask the other side, see what they want to do. Well, they didn't want to do that. The network wanted to do that. Ba, 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 ba. One thing led to the other, and then uh, Conan quit. He wrote that that letter on People of Earth, whatever it is. Now, had you guys had any sort of? Had you even met before? You yeah. and Conan. Conan and I used to be great friends. I I, I fought back in the nineties. Omeyer had Conan on literally week to week, and I went to him. I said, "This isn't fair. You can't do that. The kid's good." Let me go. And every night I would say, "Conan's next guest is so and so and so and so." So when I went in in 2003 or four, and they said, you're out, Conan's in, I said, when did this happen? Well, it all happened, you know. Oh, okay. I didn't know all this was going on behind my back. So, I, I you know, I come from the never explain, never complain. Right. So fine, just let it go. And it, I, I sort of smile when I read about how I conspired and, right. you know, Jay Leno demanded the show back and they had to give it to him because he... They had to pay him $150 million. No, there's no hundred. I didn't give me $150 million. I mean, if I'm that smart, how did I lose the show? In the first place? <laughs> so last thing on this is just, what are the different ways in which this, I'm not saying by you, but I'm saying by others, how could this have been handled better? Well, I mean, from the network's point of view, it worked out pretty well because they got to keep both me and Conan for that stability years, for five like, years. Yeah. I mean... I'm sure, I don't know who blames me, I don't know who blames anybody else, but it was a network decision. They managed to keep both, and then at the end, they thought it would be a smooth transition, but it didn't. I mean, I think, look, Conan's very talented. I don't know whether the show would have worked or not. I mean, if, if you really believe it was my fault, his show was not successful. When it came on, it got huge numbers. I mean, okay, but they didn't stay. Whose fault is that? I don't know. I'm not going to make that call. Right. But that's basically what happened. How could it have been handled differently? I, quite frankly, I don't know. Because you, and I, I totally get this, but it was, in a way, done to you. You didn't do anything, right? Uh, you know, I'm not going to play victim here. Uh, no, I don't, you know, it's never explained, never complained. You know, you right. get the idea that, ah, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, no, it's, it's just the way it worked out. I mean, I don't know what you could have done differently. I, I really have no idea. I mean, you learn from your mistakes. I don't know. I mean, when we came back on, we were number one again, just like right. that. And we stayed number one until we left. And we handed it over to Jimmy. I had no no problem handing it over to Jimmy because that was done from the first day. Here's what's going to happen. When do you want to go? Okay, fine. Thank you. I can leave in February. That's fine. Fine. And when so you I left a second time, it was because you said, that's when I want to leave? Yeah. Well, they... Well, I'm sure it would have been, would you like to leave? Bonk, you get hit on the head. <laughs> but what I mean what I mean is I was part of the process. The first time, I, did, I just came in one day and you're out. It was a done deal. I mean, I would have flipped out. What, what more are you out. supposed to do? You're num- you're, again, you're, what, you're not well, doing well, enough. Please, welcome to show business. Yeah, right, I, mean, I guess so. You know something? You either look at life as being hilariously funny. Right. Or, you know. Well, you're a glass half full guy, I guess. Yeah, but- I, I mean, it's a very funny I mean, there's a funny story. This is kind of a funny story. When I, on the 10-year anniversary of The Tonight Show. 2002. Yeah, I said, I'm going to take money out of the bank and give everybody will get $1,000 for every year you've been with me on The Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. So some people got $10,000 and some people got $3,000. Right. Okay. So on a Tuesday, it's lunchroom and we hand out almost $2 million. Wow. It was everybody. Wow. Everybody from, we took two million. It was a million eight something. Mm-hmm. Took, at the bank, everybody got, some people got a thousand because they only been there a year. And then Jack Corn, very funny, our head writer, he and I say, thanks for the money. I said, Jack, this, I'm sure this is going to backfire, Jack. No, it's not going to backfire. <laughs> so about an, two hours later, Jay, can I talk to you? Because now the way this worked is, it was when you first, got your first paycheck from NBC. It started, the mm-hmm. bonus started from it. And the first one, you know, although I started in February, I was really doing stuff <laughs> in December. I was here, I just wasn't officially on the book. Right. So you're saying, are you $2,500? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm just saying, that's what I start. Okay, well, let me, let me think about that. Right. And Jack's like, I can't believe that. I oh, said, Jack, this God. is about two hours later. Hey, you know, um, I was really 
you know, involved in the show before I actually started. And there were like five people. I mean, it was really funny. Oh, that is. I mean, it's like, a, it's like a Larry Sanders moment. That's why Larry Sanders is the greatest show ever on TV. And it, it really made it really made me laugh. Oh, this is funny. I mean, it's just really fun. Else, and you can't get mad at that. It's just it's just human nature. It's a Tuesday. Right. You're getting ten thousand dollars free on a Tuesday for right. no reason. Well, for anyone <laughs> for anyone who who wants to impugn your reputation or anything, I mean, that's one example of of doing a nice thing. And the other thing, what happened in 2012? Wasn't there a, a very bad? financial situation at the network that was going to mean a lot of jobs lost from your show? Oh, yeah. No, no. I, I mean, I took a 50% pay cut so we keep our people together, but that's what I was making. I was making $30 million a year. So let's, But I mean, that's not everybody would have no, just no, but taken... When I, well, I know, but now it sounds like I'm, you know... I asked I'm, you. You didn't bring I'm it up. I asked you. No, no, but, but someone will somehow now twist this into... <laughs> oh, Jay Leno gives you... But you know something? Most of these shows die because you get fragged by your own troops. Right. I mean, when you think of all the great shows that are on where the star acted badly you got to a point where people would say i don't care if i lose my job just so long as that prick doesn't get it i mean that i mean i saw that and when i had when i had my first manager she was very tough that way and i saw that i said you know she fired someone on our show who i thought was pretty good and after she left i called that person back and i told her listen what were you making a week i'm going to pay you your whole salary the whole time you've gone because it was okay and that was the most loyal and That's consequently right. we had really loyal people we had the same staff we were a union show we always treated the union with respect and you know if you guys have a complaint hey, just okay my attitude on the tonight show was anybody can pull the string and stop the train you know right. and sometimes it was an intern well why is this <laughs> you know and then i debbie our producer get all mad about that. Right. and i would say well that's okay let's hear what they have to say right. okay but now that person's a producer now that and i get calls and they would i like to be a voice oh sure okay right. i mean people don't forget you know kindness really works it, it really is the underlying factor to success of, of anything. Sure. Because how many people you meet, do people just hate the guy? I know, there's a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> Last two-parter about about the Tonight Show, and then we then we talk cars. If what we, do they if want? We, a lot of people wondered if Letterman would participate in your final episode or vice versa. Neither happened. Right. Why was that? Um, well, I asked David first. And, you know, David is odd. He's just... <laughs> awkward i mean i just think it would have been really awkward for him i just something on tape leno who anything you know he said no nah, i'm just not coming that's your night i want to he and said this to you directly over the phone or how did it how did he I, i'm not sure i think we may have talked over the phone i'm not sure but he just was not comfortable with it and anybody that knows dave knows he's quirky if not any and to me it was always quirkiness it was never meanness or whatever it was always turned inward with him not so much outward it was always inward and i go why is he beating himself up with this you know fine so and i honestly didn't know on the last show what it would be what what would i do you know is it, am i being set up for something here you know because well also if somebody hasn't done something for you it's hard for them to you because you were approached about doing something for his last one. Oh uh, yeah and i i said well i kind of feel like dave i mean you know, Dave didn't do mine, it worked out fine. So, I mean, I think it looks like I'm trying too hard and I'm like, well, Leno trying to kiss up again, you right. know, whatever it might be. So we just both decided not to do it. And the last thing is just yeah. your sign-off from the final episode was not coincidental, the, the wording. How did you sign off your final episode and why did you sign off that way? I have no idea. What are we this talking about? This was the, this was, I, I bid you all a heartfelt good night. Where did that come oh, from? Oh, that was Johnny's. That, that was, was his last episode, That was Johnny's episode, right? last title, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. so now... You're off after all these years of doing not only the show, but, right. but doing the stand-up also. Right. How did you end up then doing additional content now with to do with cars? Was that just well, I was doing I was doing Jay Leno's Garage on YouTube. I started that right. in 2006. And that was just a non-commercial. Here's how to change brake fluid. It was just different car thing. And it grew to be the third biggest car website on, on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Only because... We had constant turnover. I do a new video, at least one new video a week. So the trouble with most YouTube shows is people turn it on, right. and the same video is up for a month, right. and every month you come, and it's still up, and then you just don't come back. But why were you doing it? 
because you enjoyed doing it? Or? I enjoy doing yeah. it. I'm a car guy, and that's what I like. You know, I don't know music. I don't know sports, so I always have to fake it on the show. Oh, that's unbelievable, <laughs> Billy. Oh, that game, you unbelievable. I mean, I would learn the facts, and okay, right, but, right. but cars, motorcycles, engines, that's, that's, your that's passion. why. I know. Where did that start as a passion? Oh, you know, I'm one of those people that, you know, the heart works best and the hands and the head work together. You know, when you work in show business, you get paid stupid money for silly things. <laughs> I remember years ago when Suzanne Summers was doing Three's Company and she wanted a raise and the networks offered a, now this is the early 70s, mm-hmm. 150000 a week. It's 22 minutes a week. 150000 <laughs> and her manager said it was an insult. <laughs> well, I mean, to me, right. really, it's uh, you want more. I get that. <laughs> really, it's an insult. Someone said, I want you to work 22 minutes a week I'll give you $150,000 yeah. every week to work. <laughs> and it's an insult. Right. And, and so to me, I always, I always keep that in mind. Yes. You know, when you take a transmission out and your hand's all cut up and the fluid's burning your hand, and you realize some guy made 80 bucks for that. Mm-hmm. And then you go over there and talk and you get thousands of dollars. So it just puts things in perspective and you've been doing it since as you said in college you're working in a mechanics right i always had two jobs one job to live on Mm -hmm. and the other job to bank so this started as the weekly web series you jumped to cnbc as a special in august 2014 comes a weekly primetime series on cnbc in 2015 did the format change over the years or was it always well it's changed We, we we sort of have a theme uh Typical theme is the car my father drove. Mm-hmm. So you get celebrities and or regular people, whoever it might be. And it's interesting, though, with this, because I would call celebrities up and I go, look, I don't care about your drug bust. I don't care about your movie bombing. This isn't <laughs> about your wife screwing the other guy. We just want to talk about cars. Oh, oh great. Yeah. And celebrities would show up with no press people, no nothing, because they knew I'm not going to break that vow. I'm right. not interested in your personal life. I'm just interested in your reaction to cars and motorcycles and how do you feel about vehicles or whatever it might be? And and it's worked out very well. And almost all of these are cars that are part of your collection here? Well, some are. I mean, I use mine a lot, but mostly people bring their own cars, you know, especially if it's something, you know, a car their dad had or they have stories about going to church every week in the car or wherever it might be. You but know? how? just for the record, how many cars are in this collection here? Because oh, it's incredible. Boy, I sound like my wife. It's about, <laughs> about 160 cars and about uh, 130 motorcycles. And... From a superlative's point of view, what's your favorite? If I had a favorite, I wouldn't have all these cars. But <laughs> right. I, you know, it, it's like anything else. When you're, if you like muscle cars, well, you have that for a while, and then you go, what came before the muscle car? Oh, there was that car. What came before that car? Oh, that car. And then you're back to steam. Then you're back to electricity. Then you're literally back to horse and wagons. And so, what was the first wagon to have an engine put in? Oh, that's interesting. So, it, it, you know, the fascinating thing about automotive history is. It's only about 150 years old at yeah. best. Yeah. I mean, if you're studying Egyptology or something like that, you've got to go back tens of thousands of years. Whereas this, you only have to go back to the guy who lived before your grandfather. Right. And maybe some of those people are still around or some of those stories. Are. So most of the artifacts still exist. Most of the history is reasonably fresh. So it makes it sort of interesting. And the appeal, though, for you, because are you driving these cars yourself all over the yeah, place? I'm all over the place. I mean, anything that rolls, explodes, and makes noise, I like. You, like I, you know, I mean, to me, it's, again, when you take something apart and see, comedy is subjective. Uh, some people think you suck. Some people think you're funny. <laughs> they're both right. <laughs> I mean, they're both correct. Right. You can't argue with that. Right. But if something is broken, if an engine is not working, and now it runs, well, no one can say it's not running. Okay, look, see, it's running. So that's okay. what gives you the greatest pleasure. Well, yeah, because it's working now. Okay, yeah. it's, a, it's a definitive answer. You can't really get a, a straight answer in show business. Well, we all liked it. I don't know why it didn't do well. <laughs> oh, okay, that's not really an answer. Well, why, no, we thought we, oh, it was terrific. Right. I mean, you don't, you don't know. Do they think it's terrific? But, but no one can say it's not running. Right. And so you're actually, I know you've got a crew of folks here that work with you, but how much are you getting down and dirty with this stuff still? Oh, I enjoy it. I I mean, it's, I mean, I have people here that are much better at it than I am. And and so consequently, I leave the hard stuff to them, but I try to fix it back to where it was broken, you know, so (laughs) that works out okay. Your show has been nominated for seven Emmys, this, this particular show. In the short format nonfiction program category, you guys won in 2011. Right. If somebody were to go back and sample through your past episodes, they're not going to catch up entirely right away. What are the ones you'd like them to check out? 
Oh, I don't know. It depends what cars you like. I mean, if you like, you know, antique cars, that's a whole different thing. If you like exotics, that's another whole different thing. So it's really a matter of what you like. It's not a matter of what I like. Did I hear that season three, which is debuting June 28th, I believe that's going to start at George W. Bush's ranch? Yeah, we went down to Bush's ranch and he was, it was his first interview, actually. Since leaving office. Wow. He's done a few since we taped it, yeah. but it was famous. He's a car guy? Enough of a car guy. Yeah. He's more of a truck guy, but it was, a, it was just an excuse to go for a ride with the President of the United States. Yeah, that's cool. And just have a discussion and talk about stuff. And he was quite candid, and uh, I enjoyed it. Isn't it funny that you, so you and Seinfeld now, you both are getting nominated every year for your car oh, shows. Really funny. Yeah, yeah. Okay, last few things. Do you miss doing The Tonight Show? No, um, I was lucky. I did it at a time when. Bush was dumb and Clinton was horny and it was pretty, you know, I I didn't question anybody's motive. I just questioned their judgment. Now I find myself, it's it's anti-women, it's anti-gay, it's anti, I mean, I miss the silly factor. I mean, I, I think the reason Fallon is number one, and I think he's number one again, I know it's been close this year, it's back and forth, though, is because at some point you want to use TV as an escape. Look, I just want to, have a few laughs before I go to bed. That's all, you know? I mean, I just get, t- like, I, I don't like Trump. I'm not a fan. I have no interest in the man. I don't. I didn't vote for him. Uh, but I, I, just the constant, he's a jerk. It, it, it's just, an, it's a negativity that, that, that builds up to the point, you know? I was thinking of that Ann Murray song. Remember Little Good News? Remember that? Every time you turn on the radio, it's another depressing story. Right. It's like, Jesus, come yeah. on. I mean, so it's nice just to have silly jokes, funny jokes you know i was talking about this with someone the other day just oh this is just an example of a silly joke i said i was up i was working anchorage alaska it was 70 degrees below zero it was unbelievable cold i went into the thrifty drugstore and the ice cream was still soft i don't understand how that i mean that's just a silly joke it's not based i mean it doesn't have any it's not supposed to do anything except get a laugh you know i mean i mean those kind of jokes you don't really write those now it's everything has to have an opinion and if people disagree with you it's one thing you know one of my favorite was about the some kid born in china who had the vestige of a third eye did you see that story they said the kid had a third eye in the center of his forehead and today lens crafters said they can make him glasses in about an hour and a half (laughs) i mean those kind of jokes i mean they're just silly they're not just stupid but i mean sometimes that's fun you know nobody funnier than martin short i mean you ever see marty short's act It's not political. It's just hilarious. Silly it's really it. funny. And if he does something political, who did I see him on? I saw him on with, I think it was Letterman or something. Maybe it's Letterman. Maybe it's Colbert. I can't remember. But he was really funny. They asked him about Trump. And he said, Trump's doing a remake of my movie called No Amigos. You know, just, okay, that's the way you get your, 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 your wall, your Spanish thing. But you do it in a funny way. It's not pontificating on you know it's just do it in a funny way that's all i ask i imagine that you watch a, a, a maybe a couple of these on a regular basis oh, i like them all i enjoy them all trevor no i like samantha b is terrific well that um, was that all sort good. of answers what's the biggest problem in late night because i know you had actually said it's it seemed to be for for a long time just one white guy after another white guy after so those are the two exceptions i guess right. along with chelsea handler but What's the biggest shortcoming of late night today, aside from what you're saying is sort of a meanness that sometimes... Well, I know. You know, any shortcoming makes it sound like, oh, I'm Mr. Sour Grapes, you know. I like to see it just played a little more down the center. Sometimes it's just nice to see comedy for comedy's sake, right. you know. When Jimmy does his barbershop quartet doing the rap song stuff, I mean, that's really funny <laughs> to me because it's like, oh, this is what I want to see before I go to bed. Right. I don't want to hear about... Uh, a hilarious joke about right. the Syrians being right. gassed, Jesus. you know? Is there anything that ever could bring you back to late night TV? Per, and the, I want to just give a specific idea here just to ask you. On cable and streaming, you've got these guys like John Oliver and Bill Maher who go once a week. Right. And they can say anything they want, almost. We, we, you know, so I don't really want to say anything I want. I enjoy, tell me what the rules are and let me live within them. And I enjoy pushing the boundary. When there are no boundaries... It loses something yeah. for me. I, I mean, I don't necessarily, I'm not shocked by obscenity. Right. I just find it boring yeah. and dull. I mean, yeah. use another word. You know, to me, the great fun thing about doing Letterman was we'd always try to come up with 
phrases that were instead of obscenities. You know, I would say to Dave, you know, I went to this carnival, Dave, and they have these syphilitic druids warning the right. And Dave would go, syphilitic druid, what is that? That's a druid with syphilis, Dave. And he went, oh, really? And, you know, you try to come up with things that sound like right. it's yeah. going to be a swear or dirty, right. but but not, I mean, dirty. What's dirty? It's not, I'm not shocked by it. It's just, to me, it, it gets a bit lazy when I watch a comedy yeah. special. And it's all just people swearing right. constantly. I mean, swearing with a good joke. Like Pryor would swear all the time, but he had jokes, right. really funny jokes. So I'm not offended by it. I just kind of go, really? Come on. <laughs> and lastly, late night shows, I guess, are, are by their nature very ephemeral. You're talking about the day's stuff usually, right. and it's old news right after. So that being the case, many years from now when we're all gone, what is it that you hope people will remember about what you did for all those years at... First of all, no one's going to remember, okay? They don't. So that's ridiculous, you know? (laughs) The idea that people are oh, I remember, yes. They don't. Well, but you're talking about who you watched growing up. People, you made an impression. You know something? I was in Vegas recently, and the Hilton was taking down the Elvis paraphernalia because they said, kids don't really know who he is. Okay, that's Elvis, okay? (laughs) I'm not Elvis, uh, so There's the idea, <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, yeah, the idea. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't. You know, something. You live in the time you live in, and right. that's the best part of it. Right. You know, you just enjoy your life, try to do the right thing. You know, to me, the greatest book ever written is is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, because it's the only book where you don't have to die to change your life. You don't have to go to heaven. You don't even have to pray. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is be a decent human being and enjoy yourself. And treat people decently. And it's great. I mean, it crosses all... I mean, that book was written at a time when someone like Scrooge would never communicate with, you know, Tiny Tim and those people. were two different classes. But the fact that he, just by being a decent person, his whole life changes. His whole world changes. I mean, it's... And it's a populist book, which means everybody read it. Everybody right. understands the story. You can be Jewish, you can be Muslim, you can whatever. You get the story. Yeah. You don't have to be. And so to me, that's sort of the philosophy. The fact that worrying about what it's like after you're dead, why don't you try and fix it while you're here? <laughs> you know, do something nice while you're here. Set up a scholarship. Right. Do something, you know. Well, I thank you so much. I really well, appreciate it. Well, thanks.